recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, July 25th, 2012. I have a few notes, um, Christogenia-related notes, business-related notes, I guess. That the um, we, we host the kinsmanredeemer.com website. I apologize for that site being... Um, very sporadically operating the last few days. I, I did a lot of beta, database updates and repairs today and hope to have solved that problem. And, and kinsmanredeemer.com and fgcp.org should be a lot more stable now. They're on the same server, and, and they should be running fine, I, I pray. The, the um, john844.org website is down. It's been down. It's been down for three or four days. I feel kind of bad about that. I just can't do everything at once. Today, I, I worked most of the day to get um, the, the two aforementioned websites together, and, and john844.org is next. The server that that is on has some kind of strange problem that I probably um, imposed myself trying to downgrade the, the PHP. It, it's a technical issue, right? And, and um, I can't help it. I'm going to have some technical issues probably going into October uh, on Christogenia because of the sudden changes that, that had to... Um, that had to take place, and, and I'm seeing to sites that are not Christogenia websites that I host first. I had problems with Carolyn Yeager's site. Most of those are cleared up. She's gotten herself a new upgrade to a new site, and, and I have problems with, with some other sites, and, and they'll get taken care of before my own sites get taken care of, I'll tell you that. But the um, Christogenia itself is operating fine, and, and I thank God for that, right? It, it's getting... Um, Close to 700 visitors a day and, and close to 20,000 visitors a month, and, and I definitely praise God for that. We are, I think the last time I checked was yesterday, and, and we were ranked in the top 62,000 websites in the United States, and, and that to me is a major accomplishment because half of the top 100,000 websites are major media and pornography sites. So, so um for, for for basically what boils down to just being a a, a private blog, it, it's it's um it, it's we we've been blessed with internet traffic and and with exposure for our two seed line Christian identity message, and, and that to me is is foremost in, in um in my endeavors. I pray that there'll be a July Saxon Messenger very soon. Uh, I wrote an editorial. On Thursday, it's entitled The Demise of Free Speech on the Internet. It's on the front page. The editorial is on the front page of the Saxon Messenger site now, and I hope people read it and, and like it and link it because it has to be known that the mainstream media is going to ignore this, right? Well, we did have a mention along with Eli James and, and a couple of other websites and, and ProSync. We did have a mention on... Um, Newsnet14, I think it is, .com, and, and AlaskaPride.com, and a couple of other websites, we did have a mention that, that um, the ADL was having, was pressuring Internet service providers into taking websites offline and therefore um, basically infringing on the free speech rights of other private individuals. The ADL should actually be um, up on, on federal civil rights charges if, if this was a real world. Of course, we know it's not a real world, and, and, and the Jews are, and, and Satan, who are the Jews, is, is in control. That's the way it is. 
But we have to resist evil. We as Christians have to resist evil. The ADL is not going to take any of the websites that I host down except over my dead body. That, that's the way it's going to work. And, and I'm going to do everything I can in my power to keep them all up. And screw Abe Foxman. Okay, the, um, I had a few other things to say. ProSync. ProSync sites are down. That, that's circumstances that are way beyond my control. I, I just can't do it all. I hope that um, to help Mike have his sites back up in the very near future, it's being worked on. And um, the, the problem is in the hands of a third party, and we can't help it. We're, we're trying to get it fixed. As soon as it is fixed, it'll, it'll be done, and his sites will be up. So watch for um, prosync.org and 911missinglinks.com to be up sometime this week. If they're not up this week, I'll put them on, on my own servers on, until we, we do get them a space on the Internet. It's, um, I'll definitely do that if, if they're not up by this week. There's no doubt. Okay, tonight I have um, Sword Brethren here, and we're going to talk again about this, this, this document, the Doctrine of Fascism, which we've been slowly prevent, presenting over these last couple of weeks by Benito Mussolini. I was hoping to have, um, I was hoping to have Severus Nippleson here tonight because he's a lot better read, actually, in, in this area, in the areas of fascism. And, and its roots, which are in nationalism and socialism and syndicalism, he's a lot better read in, in, in those areas than I am. And if he doesn't make it tonight, well, I hope to have him on here next week because I know that he can enhance the information that we've provided here. We've been presenting this document, the Doctrine of Fascism. It, it, was, it has Benito Mussolini's name on it. It was at least co-written by one Giovanni Gentile, and this document is, it, it presents the founding, you know, the principles of the fascist movement, that their principles, tenets, doctrines, beliefs, um, and, and we've seen, I hope we've already seen, that they are nothing like what the Jew presents to us today in, in the, um, the popular media. Fascism is nothing like the tyranny and, and, and the, um, the, the tyranny that, that, that communism and, and that global capitalism have imposed on the world. Fascism is, in fact, a, a response to that. Fascism was a response which was um, a, a poli it's, its political doctrines, and, and even this document have, has admitted that its political doctrines were developed over time, after the party came to power, but that the idea and the spirit was there from the beginning, fascism was definitely a response to the evils of both Jewish international capitalism and Marxist socialism, which, which is really Bolshevik communism, right? And, and um, I, I think we've already found that out. We're going to continue to find that out as, as we present the rest of this document. And hopefully, in, in the minds of at least many Christian patriots that listen to my programs, we, we will be able to um, approach fascism and, and, and from a different aspect and perspective and, and see the value in the system and, and, and what the, Italians, the, the Italian fascists were trying to do. Right, Brian? Absolutely. And you know, in our society, 
the term Christian socialism, if you go to Wiki and look at Christian socialism, it says it's a form of religious socialism based on the teachings of Jesus, where they regard capitalism and greed to be idolatrous and um, bordering on mortal sin, and that it, it teaches against inequality. And you look up Christian or Christo-fascism, redirected from Christian fascism, is a concept in Christian theology first mentioned by Dorothy Soule, a Christian theologian and writer, in her book Beyond Mere Obedience, Reflections on a Christian Ethic for the Future. And she wrote it in 1970, talking about how they're arrogant, totalitarian, imperialistic, and that it would be um, typical under Nazi Germany or fascist Italy. And they're saying that it's the Christian equivalent of Islamofascism, and that Christian fascism is basically a hateful pseudo-religion whereby an authoritarian figure pays lip service to Jesus and uses Christianity as a mechanism for social control while advancing a very totalitarian agenda. Yet Christian socialism, they have a very lengthy article on it, and they have all these quotes from the Bible they misinterpret to try and show that Christ would be a socialist if he were alive today. So this just goes along further with what we showed about the, the bias in Wiki, where Christianity is basically a fascist religion when properly practiced. Christianity as a theological system goes along with fascism as a political system. And I once told someone that if Jesus were alive in the 30s, aside from the fact that he's the son of God and doesn't really get involved in political parties, he probably would have been in the NSDAP, or at least supportive of it. Well, well, you know, if I had to pick which political and economic philosophy was closest to what I consider true, um, let's call it apostolic Christianity, mm -hmm. I have to say that National Socialism is, is, is probably the closest of the major systems that we are familiar with from the last 120 years. Absolutely. I'd say National Socialism followed by fascism, then maybe traditional American or um, Afrikaner Boer Republicanism. And we don't really have traditional Republicanism anymore, and I don't think we're getting it back anytime soon. Well, well Christianity, uh, let me try to encapsulate this right. I, I can without a problem. The, the, the idea to fascism is syndicalism, and syndicalism that the idea to syndicalism is that the means of production are in the hands of the producers, right? That, that's basically the, the, the best way I could encapsulate that, in, in a nut, put that in a nutshell, right? That the, um, well, where, where the people who, who actually work in an industry know what's best for the industry, and, and the corporatism of Mussolini sought to have the various Syndic you know, the various syndications, the various, that there's a word I'm looking for, I don't have, the, the various guilds, because that's where syndicalism comes from, right? That, that's what that word corporatism in Italian means. It's the various guilds to have them cooperate with each other and, 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 and pool what, what you might call a socialist economy, but it's not really a socialist economy as far as the, the idea of socialism rests in, in the minds of most modern people today, which is basically Marxist Bolshevik. It's, it's Marxist communism. You, you know, when people say socialism today, they think of Marxism. And, and that's not socialism in, in its pure form simply puts the hand that the, the ownership 
of the means of production in the means of the people who work and, and who work that production. That that's the old guild system. That's the old trade system. That that yeah, you know, Jewish capitalism. The Jews, the the the, the capitalists who are mostly Jews because they're the ones printing the money in, in, in the last 400 years, they own the means of production and everybody else is a peon. Everybody else is a slave. That's capitalism, right? That, that's what people have rebelled against. That's why fascism arose in Italy and, and national socialism in Germany was to contest Jewish capitalism. When the Jewish meat rights... The Jewish media writes like as if Jewish capitalism were the um, de facto righteous system that, that everybody should subscribe to. And it's basically, it, it encourages people to approve of their own slavery. Well, they say that fascism, the left, when they talk about fascism, the narrative or the approved narrative is that fascism is the outgrowth of capitalism, and it's the last gasp of the capitalist system trying to maintain its hold on the workers and oppress the workers. But fascism is the answer. It's a, it's a ground-up, grassroots movement. It's the workers' answer to the excesses of capitalism and the threat of communism, the threat that communism poses to property, family, and tradition. And without capitalism and without communism, you don't get fascism. Workers just don't band together and decide to become fascist revolutionaries for the hell of it. It's because of communism that workers go to fascism. Well, well, right. It's because communism was being offered as the only alternative to Jewish capitalism, and fascism is a third way. At well, least I mean, the way I look fascism, at it... Fascism was a third way, and it was a way that was in the interests of the people of Italy. Well, if you've ingested hemlock and I hand you a glass of strychnine, you'd do well to reject the strychnine and go with a, a different option. Well, absolutely. Yes, that, that's, that's what the Jews do. You know, they, they hand us capitalism, it poisons us, and then they offer us communism, which is even worse poison. All right, do you um, recall where we left off in the article? Well, well, right, we're up to the section which discusses um, 1851, Napoleon III, and, and his, um, the, the coup which brought him to the rulership of France until 1870 in the Prussian War, right? Hmm. What we had been, uh, let me read the next, the last paragraph that we read last week so that we have some background. Uh, I'll read the last two paragraphs. And actually, they did a. They did, and Gentile and Mussolini did what I thought was an excellent job in um, in showing the failures of the democratic system, the failure of democracy. And and I'm going to quote where he says, "Democratic regimes may be described as those under which the people are, from time to time, deluded into the belief that they exercise sovereignty." while all the time real sovereignty resides in and is exercised by other and sometimes irresponsible and secret forces. Uh, I mean, that is the American experience. That, that is the American democratic experience, and, and, and it's summed up very nicely right there. So basically and, we have a sham democracy which is manipulated and run by people who hide behind the scenes. Well, well, right. It's it's called a democracy on the external, but but it's really an oligarchy, right? Because the money powers 
have controlled the country since since the beginning, and especially since the um, since, since the, the Gilded Age and, and the rise of the Federal Reserve. There, there's no doubt. In rejecting democracy, fascism rejects the absurd conventional lie of political equalitarianism, the habit of collective irresponsibility, the myth of felicity and indefinite progress. But if democracy be understood as meaning a regime in which the masses are not driven back to the margin of the state, then the writer of these pages has already defined fascism as an organized, centralized, authoritarian democracy. So, so he, he's simply um, claiming the higher ground in, of, of sorts of democracy for fascism, which is, which is true in a way, and the organization was more or less along the same lines as that in Germany under National Socialism. Hitler's idea is that once the party came to power democratically, that the party leaders should rule the country in, in, a, in a totalitarian manner. And, and that's Probably a much better idea than, than the parliamentary democracy, which Hitler despised, and Hitler despised it because of all the, the petty arguing and, and, and party politics that went back and forth ceaseless, ceaselessly, which actually prevented anything from actually ever getting done, and, and it actually prevented a, a, a country from setting a definite and solid course for itself. And at the end of the day, the leader should not be held captive to the ever-changing emotions and feelings and passions of the people if he has a great vision for where the nation should go and the people were on board with it long enough to put him in power, then they should stay the course and follow him. And here's where we left off last week. Fascism is definitely and absolutely opposed to the doctrines of liberalism. And we discussed last week that liberalism is a, a failure. It, it's the failure of the American Republic is, is liberalism, right? Both in, in the political and the economic sphere. The importance of liberalism in the 19th century should not be exaggerated for present-day polemical purposes, nor should we make one of the many doctrines which flourished in that century a religion for mankind for the present and for all time to come. Liberalism really flourished, and I don't, I, I understand he's talking about pure classical liberalism and, and how it, you know, and whether or not it would guide the future of Europe, but I, I don't agree with the statement anyway. Liberalism really... Enlightenment, enlightenment liberalism? Yeah, and, and, and we still have we still operate under liberalism today. I, I think that he, he might be limiting, he's not limiting his... His the the top, the subject here to Italy alone, right? He, he's talking about all Europe, but I, I don't really, yeah, you know, to me, liberalism is it has ruled since World War One, right? I, I mean, it's been the dominant force in European politics since World War One and in American politics, definitely. And, and so I really don't understand this this statement. I wish. Perhaps Severus was here to, to give us insight into it, but his, his claim is that liberalism really flourished for 15 years only. It arose in 1830 as a reaction to the Holy Alliance, which tried to force Europe to recede further back than 1789, back to the old monarchies. It, it touched its zenith in 1848, when even Pius IX was a liberal. 
Its decline began immediately after that year. If 1848 was a year of light and poetry, 1849 was a year of darkness and tragedy. The Roman Republic was killed by a sister republic, that of France. In that same year, Marx, in his famous Communist Manifesto, launched the Gospel of Socialism, which uh, I don't really see the, the Communist Manifesto as being pure socialism. It, it's, it's a certain really, socialism. It didn't really launch that gospel or that doctrine. As we established with Nesta Webster, Marx didn't really bring anything new to the table. And there had been revolutions against property, the church, and family as far back as the 1200s with secret societies. Marx just well, popularized well, it, and he, he's the most notable. He basically codified it. it, it it's something that the, the Jews, the Illuminists, the secret societies, it's a direction they have been moving in for, for many years, and Marx, that they had Marx codify it for them, that they had him codify that, that their intentions into a political manifesto that became the Communist Manifesto. And it's no coincidence that he came out with this, he was under the gun to come out with this Communist Manifesto in time so that it was ready for the revolutions of 1848, so they could bring it out and say, here's what the workers demand. Right. And I'll talk, I started to talk before and I got sidetracked before we began this about um, Christian socialism. And, and let me do that real quick. This will only take about five minutes. I got off track. I apologize for that. And then we'll start, we'll pick up where we left off last week with Napoleon in 1851. But the, the idea that socialism is the ideal um, Christian government, if you actually examine Acts chapters 2, chapter 4, is a socialistic sort of government where, where property is shared in common and everybody eats, but everybody works in a Christian government. If somebody doesn't work, and, and this is in 2 Thessalonians, Paul states so, if somebody is not willing to work, neither must he eat. In other words, we all make sure that we all eat if we're a community of Christians, but we also all make sure that we're all contributing to but the community. But we should make, as an aside, if somebody's worked for 50, 60 years and now they're old and retired, you don't make them go out in the field and, and you know, work to plow every day or go into the mine and strike away with a pickaxe. They're, they're allowed to eat even though they're no longer capable of working. Now, another aspect of Christian socialism is that it's voluntary. Yes. Christians were never compelled that they had to. They were never forced to give up their property. They were encouraged to share their excess with their brethren. There's nowhere in the Bible, in, in the New Testament, where Christians were forced to share their property. Even Paul in his epistles, when he took up collections for, for the poor, for, for the people that needed the money... It was always voluntary. He always encouraged those people to give what they could on a voluntary basis. And, and there was no accounting behind the scenes. That there were no, that no 10%, 50%, that there, there was no accounting. You gave what you could on a voluntary basis. That's the second aspect of Christian socialism that's diverse from the forced communistic socialism that we see imposed in, in Western nations today. Third is that, and, and, and this is fully in line with, Adolf Hitler is fully in line with this in, in his national socialist policies. Third is that Christian socialism is moral. 
there's never any compulsion. And in fact, it, it's, it, it's highly discouraged that we share our blessings, our goods, our wealth with immoral people. We don't do that. And, and forced Marxist socialism that we see today imposed by most Western governments is blind to morality. And, and Adolf Hitler's National Socialist Germany also imposed morality on the people. And, and that's anathema to the Jew, right? And we also see in Benito Mussolini's fascism, as it's been defined these last several weeks, an, an imposed morality on the people of the nation. Because morality is very important to the, to the spiritual well-being and to the social well-being and to the health of a nation. And to the but, people who say but, you can't legislate morality... Well, they're certainly not objecting to the legislation of immorality, and we have a government that legislates immorality, and if they can legislate immorality, we can certainly legislate morality. Right. Even if we can't so, make everyone believe this is the right way, we can certainly make them behave that way. Now, the, the, of course, the last facet of Christian socialism, of true Christian socialism, is that it is nationalist. It is racist. You take care of your brethren. You take care of your kinfolk. The meanings of those Greek words did not change because they appear in the New Testament. Well, what was it that Jesus said? It's not fit to cast the children's bread to the dogs. Absolutely. And, and I come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And there's a whole lot of other very exclusive statements in the New Testament. We are not ever compelled to share our blessings and our wealth with aliens. So, so, and, and that, of course, is another aspect of Adolf Hitler's National Socialism. Christian Socialism is racist. Christian Socialism is moral. Christian Socialism is voluntary. It's community. And we have none of that in our nation with our Marxian socialism. But then again, Marx wasn't voluntary. He wasn't concerned about whether or not people consented. He certainly wasn't moral. He wasn't Christian, and he wasn't one of us. Absolutely not. Uh, I mean, Marxist communism is the imposition of Jewish Talmudism uh, on the Gentile society, if I have to use the phrase. And it's straight out of the mind of Satan. Absolutely. There's no doubt. So I, I had to get that in because well, we had that discussion about socialism, right? And, and had to make those distinctions. If I recall, the, several years ago when we did Germany and the Jewish Problem by Dr. F.K. Wiebe, I remarked something along the lines of that Talmudism is the political – I'm sorry, I said that communism is the political expression of Talmudic morality and that it is the inevitable result – of the Talmud, that communism is natural and it flows directly from the Talmud. And any society that accepts Jews and extends tolerance to the Jews and treats them as just another religion and affords them all the accommodations of a genuine faith will inevitably become a communist society because Jews are inborn communists. Well, well right, and it should be perfectly clear in history because wherever we have had Jews... Um, Jews preponderate in, in the political class, we have had a move towards communism. 
Well, we have had a natural gravitation towards communism whenever Jews have populated the political class of any one of our nations. I've noticed America today. There's no communism in Israel, though, is there? Well, well, they don't enforce it on themselves, right? I, I recall there was someone in the 70s who made some remark that communism is the mechanism by which the Jew takes your nation from you, thus there's no need for communism in Israel because they already own Israel. Well, they don't enforce it on themselves, right? It, it, it's, it's the political solution. It's the Jewish political solution for the masses, right? Okay, we're going to start with the next section of this document and, and perhaps finish it tonight. I'm, I'm not sure, or, or at least finish our presentation of it. In 1851, Napoleon III made his illiberal coup d'etat and ruled France until 1870 when he was turned out by a popular rising following one of the severest military defeats known to history. The, the victor was Bismarck, who never even knew the whereabouts of liberalism and its prophets. It is symptomatic that throughout the 19th century, the religion of liberalism was completely unknown to so highly civilized a people as the Germans, but for one parenthesis, which has been described as the ridiculous parliament of Frankfurt, which lasted just one season. Germany attained her national unity outside liberalism and in opposition to liberalism, a doctrine which seems foreign to the German temperament, essentially monarchical, whereas liberalism is the historic and logical anteroom to anarchy. The three stages in the making of German unity were the three wars of 1864, 1866, and 1870, led by such liberals, and, and he puts that in quotes, as Moltke and Bismarck. And in the upbuilding of Italian unity, liberalism played a very minor part when compared to the contribution made by Mazzini and Garibaldi, who were not liberals. But for the intervention of the illiberal Napoleon III, we should not have had Lombardy, and without that of the illiberal Bismarck at Sadawa and at Sedan, very probably we should not have had Venetia in 1866, and in 1870 we should not have entered Rome. The so years as aside, Sadawa is just, it's, an, it's another word for the Battle of Konigratz. It was the most decisive battle in the Austro-Prussian War, which saw the Austrians defeated, and they basically, it was pretty much the end of the war between the um, Prussians and the Austrians. It was a very decisive battle in that war in 1866. And it was actually, well, well um, Napoleon III could not, Napoleon III wrote his own demise when he failed to go to the side of the Austrians against the Prussians. However, he, he had a... Um, uh, I read something about his Carbonari background per, forbidding him to do so, that, that, that his background, he couldn't support the Austrian throne because of where he had come from and who he was. I, I'd have to examine that more. Thinking about that as well, though, at this time in the 1860s, France was highly degenerate and Austria was highly degenerate and Judaized as well. And I think Hitler said that a coalition of cripples cannot overcome a strong homogenous nation that has a strong sense of purpose and destiny. So even at this point, I don't know if Austria and France even combined could have stopped Prussia from unifying into Germany because the Germans, first of all, were a better people. They were a much more homogenous nation. Less than 1% of the German states were Jewish. 
Austria, I believe, was 12% Jewish. France, you know, God only knows with France. The Germans were better disciplined. They had better weapons. The Austrians, I believe, were still using breech load, I'm sorry, um, muzzle-loading muskets, you know, black powder weapons. The Prussians had a cartridge rifle that was a single shot, but it was a breech loader. So they were they had much better technology, much better organization. They didn't have nearly the manpower, but they were just a better nation with better equipment and better better resources. So I, I don't think the Austrians could have, you know, there was no way Austria was going to overcome the Prussians no matter what. And I think even if the French had come in to help them, so what? It would be two degenerate powers with poor technology against one nation with a strong sense of purpose. So well, I think well, you, Germany, Germany was destined to unify. There's more than that going on in the background because if you remember when we when we talked about the revolutions of Europe last year hmm. uh, on your Sunday night program, Nesta Webster heavily intoned, and, and, and I really think she came out and said it a few times, that the Illuminists, the Masons, and European Jewry had thrown their support behind the House of Hohenzollern, behind the Prussians, because they wanted to unify all of Europe with them at the head so that they could manipulate a, a global economy at that time. Now, I wonder, though, why would they pick the Hohenzollerns when they already basically had the Habsburgs in their pockets? Since the, the Habsburgs had been a very corrupt, decadent family, they um, extended emancipation for the Jews, religious toleration. And the, if I'm not mistaken, the Austrian Habsburgs were the first to give hereditary titles of nobility to the Jews. Well, well, right. I can't second guess it, but, but I do remember Nesta Webster have, actually coming out and saying that. So it might be a case where the um, Habsburgs serve their purpose. The Jews see that they're weak, they're a falling star. The Prussians are the rising star. So they're basically saying to the Habsburgs, thanks for helping us out. We don't need you anymore. We've sucked you dry. We're moving on with the Prussians now. We're backing the new kids on the block. Well, well right. I don't want to conjecture anything, but that was, that was the entire tone uh, of Nesta Webster's um, presentations on the revolutions of 1848-1872, right? I guess that, that would be in keeping with how the Jews use their host nations. I mean, they, they can be in Austria for 600 years, benefit greatly, and they're not going to develop any great love or affinity for the Austrian people or nation. As soon as they're no longer useful, they're going to just let the Austrians sink, and they're going to jump ship. Rats are always the first ones to leave a sinking ship. Well, let's continue with Benito Mussolini. Bismarck and Sadawa and in Sudan, very probably we should have, uh, I'm sorry, I should probably start, if I'm going to reread, I should probably start at the beginning of the sentence, but this is a long one, right? But for the intervention of the illiberal Napoleon III, we should not have had Lombardy, and without that of the illiberal Bismarck at Sadawa and in Sudan, very probably we should not have had Venetia in 1866, and in 1870 we should not have entered Rome. The years going from 1870 to 1915 cover a period which marked, even in the opinion of the high priest of the new creed, meaning in socialism, right, the twilight of their religion attacked by decadentism in literature and by activism in practice. Activism, that is to say, nationalism, futurism, and fascism, which today the Jewish-controlled media keep a pretty good clamp on, right? The liberal century, after piling up innumerable Gordian knots, used, I'm sorry, tried tried to cut them with the sword of the world war. Never has any religion claimed so cruel a sacrifice 
were the gods of liberalism thirsting for blood. And the next paragraph is a pretty bad assessment, I think. I, 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 liberalism still rules in, in, um, in political philosophies today. The but United he, States and Great Britain are fully proof of that. We should keep in so, mind, though, he's writing this in the mid to late 20s, early 30s. So this is from an Italian perspective when apparently well, well, at the time, from his perspective anyway, liberalism at the time had basically been discredited and failed. Well, well right, and it ended up winning the next world war, right? Now, liberalism is preparing to close the doors of its temples, deserted by the peoples who feel that the agnosticism it professed in the sphere of economics and the indifferentism of which it, had, it has given proof in the sphere of politics and morals would lead the world to ruin in the future as they have done in the past. So he's basically, he's writing the epitaph for, for liberalism, and it's far too early, right? But he's giving them way too much credit. He's assuming that their intentions are genuine, sincere, and decent, and that they don't wish to lead the world to ruin. He's thinking that liberalism wants to establish a functioning nation. They just don't know how to do it because they're mistaken and wrong. From our perspective, though, these people are consciously seeking to wreck nations. Well, well, right, because the liberal only really wants to gain control of the nation so that he could corrupt it, because liberalism is a humanist Jewish philosophy. The means to an end. Right. And, and, and I think that the, Thomas Jefferson and a lot of the good Anglo-Saxon men who adopted its ideas did so in good spirit, but they should have examined history first. This explains why all the political experiments of our day are anti-liberal, and it is supremely ridiculous to endeavor on this account to put them outside the pale of history, as though history were a preserve set aside for liberalism and its adepts, as though liberalism were the last word in civilization beyond which no one can go. Well, well that's the, that is the, the general attitude today uh, amongst people of, of any party. In the, in, in the mainstream political arenas, they all take it for granted that liberalism it is the natural state of, of politics for man, and, and, and it's, um, everything else is branded as totalitarian or evil or, or with one slander or another. The liberals believe they have a monopoly on intelligence and intellectual activity, and anybody who doesn't support their so-called progressive agenda is just a Neanderthal caveman who's literally walked right out of the Stone Age. Well, well, right. Liberalism is very, very arrogant. And its arrogance is itself a form of totalitarianism, academically speaking. The fascist negation of socialism, democracy, liberalism should not, however, be interpreted as implying a desire to drive the world backwards to positions occupied prior to 1789, a year commonly referred to as that which opened the demo-liberal the demo, demo, democratic right demo-liberal century. History does not travel backwards. The fascist doctrine has not taken De Maistre as its prophet. Monarchical absolutism is of the past, and so is ecclesiolatry or or you know rule by the pope. And De Maistre was Joseph Marie. De Maistre. He was a French count, and um, according to Wiki, he was also a, a lawyer, diplomat, philosopher, and writer, which makes me suspicious of him, since they said that he was involved in mysticism and sociology, and he was a Jesuit, educated by Jesuits, which to me, that, that, 
that's all highly suspicious. This supposedly highly religious man who's educated by Jesuits. And a, a number of people in the white nationalist movement seem to rally around this guy, and they hail him as a great reactionary who stands against the forces of liberalism. And he also said that um, it was a rationalist rejection of Christianity that was directly responsible for the French Revolution of 1789. But having been educated by the Jesuits, I wouldn't expect this guy to see the Jewish hand in everything. And he was more or less a, a reactionary voice who wrote and spoke in the aftermath of the French Revolution. They, they, they denounced him as a counter-revolutionary. I just started Monarch mentioning. Monarchical absolutism is of the past, and so is ecclesiolatry. Dead and done for are the feudal privileges and the division of society into closed, uncommunicating castes. Neither has the fascist conception of authority anything in common with that of a police-ridden state. A party governing a nation totalitarianly is a new departure in history. There are no points of reference nor of comparison, and that is probably true. It, it's it, probably true. When, he, when, when he's saying that feudal privileges are done away with and division of society is gone, I don't think he's rallying around this egalitarian idea that we're all equal in all things, but I, I think he would be on board with what the founders said, that all men are created equal in so much that it doesn't matter who your father is. If you have the talent and the resources and you want to go to law school or medical school or be an engineer or get into the military and work your way up and become a general, it doesn't matter that your father's not a count or a duke or an earl or a baron. Those positions are not artificially closed to you just because you're the son of a farmer. That's well, well and, and that was the fault of the 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 um, monarchical systems of Europe, mm -hmm. right? The, the arrogance of the nobles and the royals. The um, the idea of a party governing a nation, it, it's the, the democracies of Athens outlawed parties, and, and that's stated explicitly by um, Thucydides. The, the, um, the Republic of Rome outlawed the party, the political party, the idea of a political union among citizens, because all parties are conspiracies, right? That, that's what the average person doesn't understand, but the ancient Athenians understood it, and the ancient Romans under the ancient Republic understood it. All parties are conspiracies. Well, funny you mention this, because Boxer and I had a conversation not three hours ago in which we discussed that it doesn't matter if someone has a D or an R next to their name. That doesn't mean anything about an agreement with a general set of principles. It just means they belong to an organization of men dedicated towards perpetuating their own power by getting their own people elected and keeping them in office, and that it's essentially people who want access to the political process, so they subordinate themselves to the interest of what amounts to a conspiracy of their fellows who are dedicated to accumulating and consolidating political power. Well, the acceptance of the political party, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I don't know enough about the, the grassroots politics in 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 the the revolutionary colonies to to make an, an intelligent comment on it. But the acceptance of the party in American politics was was it, it sealed the downfall of the republic, right? Well, I, I'm know, sure. There's a lot of revisionism going on as to Washington's affiliations. When I went to Mount Rushmore last summer. 
they have a plaque there with information about him. You know, they have one for everybody that has their, their face up there on Mount Rushmore. And with Washington, you know, it says occupation, farmer, slash soldier, slash politician, party, federalist. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but when Washington was president, the Federalist Party did not even exist. Federalism was merely an idea being tossed around in debates and political circles, and he never was a member of a party, and he eschewed all parties. And even Wiki lists him as an independent. Yet the um, U.S. Park Services, they have him as a Federalist on the official plaque at Mount Rushmore. But well, the, the government's always rewriting history to to um to accommodate the current events, right? There's no doubt. They they do it all the time. I pointed it out several times in articles at, at Valley Forge at Independence Hall. They just blatantly rewrite history to accommodate current political situation. In, in 200 years, Washington will be a mulatto. He'll be a mulatto and probably a Republican, right? A party governing a, governing a nation totalitarianly is the new departure in history. There are no points of reference nor of comparison. I, I'd like to – I don't have enough information on the old Spartan, Spartan monarchy, but they elected two kings every year. And I don't have enough information to determine whether or not that was along party lines, right? And, and there's probably a few other examples. I don't have enough information to determine that there was a, a – um, there was some sort of a democratic system in place and, and a system of um, a, 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 a assembly of the people. I wonder for, what the um, Spartan government in Sumer, right? With the dual monarchy in Sparta, was one king in charge of the military and the other in charge of civil and political matters? How did that work? Yeah, you know, I, I don't have enough information. Because so much of the history is written from the Athenian viewpoint, I really don't have enough of the information that I need to, to determine the, the inner workings of Spartan government. I, I'm missing something in my reading, or it's not there, I don't know. But, but I haven't read it yet, right? I'm probably missing something in my reading, right? There are no points of reference nor of comparison from beneath the ruins of Liberal, socialist, and democratic doctrines, fascism extracts those elements which are still vital. It preserves what may be described as the acquired facts of history. It rejects all else. That is to say, it rejects the idea of a doctrine suited to all times and to all people. Granted that the 19th century was the century of socialism, liberalism, democracy, this does not mean that the 20th century must also be the century of socialism, liberalism, democracy. Political doctrines pass, nations remain. We are free to believe that this is the century of authority, a century tending to the right, a fascist century. If the 19th century was the century of the individual, liberalism implies individualism, we are free to believe that this is the collective century. And, and he was right, he just didn't know it was going to be Marxist, right? <laughs> or Bolshevik. And therefore, the century of the state, it is quite logical for a new doctrine to make use of the still vital elements of other doctrines. No doctrine was ever born quite new and bright and unheard of. No doctrine can boast absolute originality, which is, of course, very true. It is always connected, if only historically, with those which preceded it and those which will follow. 
Thus, the scientific socialism of Marx links up to the utopian socialism of the Furriers, the Owens, the St. Simons. Thus, the liberalism of the 19th century traces its origin. This is a very revealing statement for him to just make this so, so, so readily, that because this is um, what one of the things that we talked about at length from Nesta Webster and the other material that we used in, in our coverage of the French Revolution and, and our discussions of, of that, and the Revolution of 1848. So this is a revealing sent, sentence here. Thus, the liberalism of the 19th century traces its origin back to the Illuministic movement of the 18th, to Adam Weishaupt, to the Jacobins, to the Masonic conspiracies. There we have it. And, and this is just coming very naturally from Benito Mussolini. So this and was the, fairly common knowledge back then, at the very least. Well, well for Gile, him to make that statement so, so casually, it must have been common knowledge, right? So Gentile and Mussolini must have at least known of the danger of the Jews, or at least the um, Freemasons, the Illuminati. And I was pointing out earlier in my discussion with Boxer about the homogenous nature of Germany in the 20s, where not all Germans were on the same page politically, but the, when the NSDAP pointed out that Jews were the main enemy, at least most Germans recognized that Jews were an alien influence inside the national body of the German nation and that they were not indigenous to Europe and that they really had, at the end of the day, no place in Germany and that they were contrary to the nation. So on some level, Gentile must realize, if he recognizes the Illuminati Masonic connection he must know of course being a smart man that at the end of the day if you if you trace it all back and connect the dots that the illuminati is just a front for jewelry well well absolutely he must have realized that mussolini i can't imagine him not realizing it but he made this statement very casually and very naturally inside of his his broader um presentation and he must have taken it for granted that it was well known and he, he, he doesn't but feel the need. He, he, today it's not known at all. It, it's incredible. The fact that he doesn't feel the need to reinforce, expand, and defend this point for five or six paragraphs tells me that he, he's recognizing that the audience is going to be on the same page. They're going to understand where he's coming from, and he's not going to need to prove that two plus two equals four because they already realize and agree. Absolutely. It's it, it's a it, it's a very striking statement for those reasons, right? Where today you talk about the Illuminati and people demand you prove they even existed, and I'm not going to waste that time. Thus, the liberalism of the 19th century traces its origin back to the Illuministic movements of the 18th and the doctrines of democracy to those of the Encyclopedists. All doctrines aim at directing the activities of men towards a given objective. But these activities, in their turn, react on the doctrine, modifying and adjusting it to new needs or outstripping it. A doctrine must therefore be a vital act and not a verbal display. Hence, the pragmatic strain in fascism, its will to power, its will to live, its attitude toward violence, and its value. The keystone of the fascist doctrine is its conception of the state, of its essence, its functions, and its aims. For fascism, the state is absolute. Individuals and groups, relative. Individuals and groups are admissible insofar as they come within the state. 
Instead of directing the game and guiding the material and the moral progress of the community, the liberal state restricts its activities to recording results. The fascist state is wide awake and has a will of its own. For this reason, it can be described as ethical. Not only this, but the liberal conception of state is essentially a centralized government bureaucracy and anybody can be a citizen. There's no sort of blood requirement. You don't have to be of the Volk community to join the state. You can get your citizenship as readily as one would say get a license for a dog or sign up for a class at school. All you have to do is submit the paperwork, send it in, and a day or so later you receive your confirmation that you're a citizen. Everything's good to go. That That's the liberal concept of citizenship. It's more of a political empire, government loyalty. There's no race requirement. So the fascist conception that the state is above the individual and is absolute, there's no problem with that because the fascist idea of the state is that it's a citizenship based on blood and shared heritage and struggle. The liberal idea of a state, anybody can be a member. If you're, a, if you're the British state, a Pakistani can move there, and he can be just as fine as a, a British man who traces his roots in Britain in the last 10,000 years. So in that sense, Bill, do, do the liberals really have an idea of a state, or do they just see it as a group of people and some lines drawn on a map? It, it seems to me that the, the liberal idea of the state is, is basically a management unit for a geographical territory. Hmm. You, you know, and you could enter into a state like you could enter into a Walmart and, and, and conduct business in a Walmart. That, that, to me, is the best way to encapsulate the liberal idea of the state. That the Adolf Hitler's idea of a state what was that the state what was an organic um, entity that represented a people that, that worked in the interests of a people that a state only had a right to exist as being a a, a representative of a race of people. And if several million Germans move right. to rural Argentina, they bring Germany with them. Germany is where the Germans are. Well, it makes sense to me because um, we, we have several million Africans in America, and they brought Africa with them. But we have 45 million Africans, <laughs> more than just a few. <laughs> yeah, um, that's just one example, right? But they, they, yeah, the state, in, in, in the National Socialist purview, the state is attached to the people. It comes from the people. It protects the interest of those people, and it's not really tied to any geographic boundaries. Well, let's compare briefly real quick here. The Falkland Islands with several thousand British and Welshmen there and some Scots, and they have a very harsh climate, a very limited growing season, and let's compare that to Haiti, which has a growing season that basically lasts all year round. Which of those two states, which of those two islands is productive, safe, and stable? The Africans brought, you know, Africa with them when they went to Haiti, and the Englishmen brought England with them when they went to the Falklands. Well, I'm going to read Adolf. I'm, I'm going to reread this. It's only two sentences. I really like Adolf Hitler's definition of the state. Now, now his definition of the state it, it spans um, several pages in Mein Kampf, but I think it's summed up best in, in these two in, in these two sentences from page. 93 of the Murphy translation. It can be found on the Mein Kampf project on that page at Christagenia.org. The state is a community of living beings who have kindred physical and spiritual 
natures, in other words, are of the same race, right? Organized for the purpose of assuring the conservation of their own kind and to help towards fulfilling those ends which providence has assigned to that particular race or racial branch. And that, to me, is, is a wonderful definition of what a state should be in, in, in the modern world or, and how a state should be viewed. But, of course, it's not practiced anywhere because everywhere in, in the, the liberal world of today, a state is basically a, an, a governing agency of a geographical territory. That, that's what it boils down to. Which means nothing. A, a state is basically reduced to being the management unit for, for the for the new world order, right? Uh, of any particular um, geographical area. Absolutely, and also from page eighty-five of the Murphy translation, he says, "Generally speaking, we must not forget that the highest aim of human existence is not." the maintenance of a state of government, but rather the conservation of the race. And to the modern liberals, and mostly to the, to the, for the neocons as well, the maintenance of the centralized government of the United States of America is their highest aim of human existence. It's the end-all, be-all. It doesn't matter if the white race thrives and survives in North America, just as long as the incarnation of this government, this institution that was founded by white men several hundred years ago, if it survives and we pass the torch to Pakistanis and Mexicans, that's all well and good. It doesn't matter if there are any white men left in a hundred years, just as long as the government's around and they have a Supreme Court, a Congress, a president, and they celebrate our holidays and they, they speak some, you know, something at least that vaguely resembles our English language because they don't care about race. They don't understand the importance or they just don't care. But wouldn't you agree, Bill, that the, the, exist, the, the purpose of our existence in this world is not to maintain some central bureaucracy? Well, well of course not. Uh, of course not. Man has a great spiritual purpose that liberalism has basically destroyed. Hmm. At the first quinquennial assembly of the regime in 1929, I said the fascist state is not a night watchman, solicitous, only of the personal safety of the citizens, nor is it organized exclusively for the purpose of guaranteeing a certain degree of material prosperity and relatively peaceful conditions of life. A board of directors would do as much. Neither is it exclusively political, divorced from the practical realities and holding itself aloof from the multifarious activities of the citizens and the nation. The state, as conceived and realized by fascism, is a spiritual and ethical entity for securing the political, juridical, and economic organization of the nation, an organization which in its origin and growth is a manifestation of the spirit. The state guarantees the internal and external safety of the country, but it also safeguards and transmits the spirit of the people. In other words, it upholds morality elaborated down the ages in its language, its customs, its faith. It upholds the civilization of the people. The state is not only the present, it is also the past and above all the future, transcending the individual's brief spell of life. The state stands for the imminent conscience of the nation. The forms in which it finds expression change, but the need for it remains. The state educates the citizens to civism, 
makes them aware of their mission, urges them to unity. Its justice harmonizes their divergent interests. It transmits to future generations the conquests of the mind in the fields of science, art, law, human solidarity. It leads men up from primitive tribal life to that highest manifestation of human power, imperial rule. The state hands down to to future generations the memory of those who laid down their lives to ensure its safety or to obey its laws. It sets up, as examples and records for future ages, the names of the captains who enlarged its territory and of the men of genius who have made it famous. Whether respect for the state declines and the disintegrating and centrifugal tendencies of individuals and groups prevail, nations are headed for decay. And we see that in America today, what where um, party politics has split the nation against itself and, and a house divided against itself cannot stand, right? A lot of people would like to attribute this to economic, concern, economic issues, but ultimately economic concerns are secondary. And I'd like to read from page 128 of Mein Kampf here. The qualities which are employed for the foundation and preservation of a state have accordingly little or nothing to do with the economic situation. And this is conspicuously demonstrated by the fact that the inner strength of a state only very rarely coincides with what is called its economic expansion. On the contrary, there are numerous examples to show that a period of economic prosperity indicates the approaching decline of a state. If it were correct to attribute the foundation of human communities to economic forces, then the power of a state as such would be at its highest pitch during periods of economic prosperity and not vice versa. And I would point to Britain right after World War II. They have just won World War II, and within a decade they've lost their entire empire, and their entire state is in the process of being gutted by Pakistani and other brown squat monster immigrants. So ultimately, economics always come after. If the state doesn't have a strong race, if the state isn't strong, homogenous, and with a well-defined purpose and destiny, then economics don't matter. In the Marxist, economics is going to be first, and the individuals, the, the men of the state, are reduced themselves to being simple economic units, right? Well... Um, you you know Henry Wickham Steed, correct? Historian and journalist from the 20s and 30s? No. He wrote the book Through 30 Years. He also wrote Habsburg Monarchy, and I'd like to quote from Through 30 Years, page 30. Henry Wickham Steed. Moreover, to those who believed in Marx, socialism offered a substitute for religion at a time when the old philosophies were losing their hold and the churches were reeling under the blows of scientific criticism the Marxist doctrine, with its materialist conception of the universe, its economic syllogisms, and its promise of a better life to be attained through the socialist state, seemed to fill with grounds for positive faith, a void of which many Germans had been vaguely conscious. It mattered little that these grounds for faith were not entirely new. They acquired convincing force from the uncompromising vehemence with which Marx stated half-truths as whole-truths. Mere arguments rarely move the masses. Ideas that are put forward with all the qualifications requisite for approximate accuracy have little drive and cannot sway men's minds. Marx and his disciples propounded a set of dogmas 
created emotions about them, and in reality founded a materialist economic church. These dogmas were drawn from a materialist conception of the world and of history. Marx taught that the economic order is the basis of all social order, and that the legal and political structures of society, as well as religion and philosophy, are explicable only in light of economic conditions. All social or political change, he contended, is the result of antecedent economic change. He left no place for the influence of generous ideas or for the ideas of justice or liberty. In words which I afterwards heard his son-in-law, Paul Lefebvre, use in public, quote, Marx turned God out of history. And here the Jews used the court system to do it. Go on. And Henry Wickham Steed has been um, resoundingly and um, regularly denounced by Jewry as an anti-Semite. He was a. He spent a lot of time in Germany. He lived from, I believe, 1840s to about 1928, 1930. He was a. Um, he was an author and a journalist. Okay, maybe he's worth taking a look at someday. I'm sorry, most of the stuff I've read is 2,000 years old, right? <laughs> I was gonna, he wrote extensively about the Habsburg monarchy. He basically he had nothing positive to say about the Habsburg monarchy or the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire. Since 1949. Oh, I'm oh, sorry, let me get back to this paper. I was wrong with um, his life. It was 1871 to 1956. That's good. Since 1929, economic and political development have everywhere emphasized these truths. The importance of the state is rapidly growing. The so-called crisis can only be settled by state action and within the orbit of the state. Where are the shades of the Jules Simons who, in the early days of liberalism, proclaimed that the state should endeavor to render itself useless and prepare to hand in its resignation. Well, well, of course, that's what the Jew wanted so that they could replace it with something in their own image, right? Or of the McCulloughs, who in the second half of last century urged that the state should desist from governing too much. And what of the English Bentham, who considered that all industry asked of government was to be left alone? And of the German Humboldt, who expressed the opinion that the best government was a lazy one. What would they say now to the unceasing, inevitable, and urgently requested interventions of government in business? It is true that the second generation of economists was less uncompromising in this respect than the first, and that even Adam Smith left the door ajar, however cautiously, for government intervention in business. If liberalism spells individualism, fascism spells government. The fascist state is, however, a unique and original creation. It is not reactionary, but revolutionary, for it anticipates the solution of certain universal problems which have been raised elsewhere. In the political field, by the splitting up of parties, the usurpation of power by parliaments, the irresponsibility of assemblies, in the economic field, by the increasingly numerous and important functions discharged by trade unions and trade associations with their disputes and entants affecting both capital and labor, the ethical field by the need felt for order, discipline, obedience to the moral dictates of patriotism. 
Fascism desires the state to be strong and organic, based on broad foundations of popular support. The fascist state lays claim to rule in the economic field no less than in others. It makes its actions felt through the length and breadth of the country by means of its corporative, social, and, and all, we always have to remember when it says corporative that he's talking about the syndicalist system of the 19th century. That's what it means. It means the guilds in, in, in the Italian language, right? has nothing to do with modern, um, modern for-profit corporations, modern companies. Social and educational institutions and all the political, economic, and spiritual forces of the nation organized in their respective associations circulate within the state, a state based on millions of individuals who recognize its authority, feel its action, and are ready to serve its ends is not the tyrannical state of a medieval lordling. It has nothing in common with the despotic states existing prior to or subsequent to 1789. Far from crushing the individual, the fascist state multiplies his energies just as in a regiment a soldier is not diminished but multiplied by the number of his fellow soldiers. The fascist state organizes the nation but it leaves the individual adequate elbow room. It is curtailed useless or harmful liberties while preserving those which are essential. In such matters, the individual cannot be the judge, but the state only. The fascist state is not indifferent to religious phenomena in general, nor does it maintain an attitude of indifference to Roman Catholicism, the special positive religion of Italians. The state has not got a theology, but it has a moral code. And, and that's what, what the American experiment also tried to do. The fascist state sees in religion one of the deepest of spiritual manifestations, and for this reason, it not only respects religion, but defends and protects it. The fascist state does not attempt, as did Robespierre at the height of the revolutionary delirium of the convention, to set up a god of its own, nor does it vainly seek, as does Bolshevism, to efface God from the soul of man. Fascism respects the God of ascetics, saints, and heroes. And it also respects God as conceived by the ingenuous and primitive heart of the people, the God to whom their prayers are raised. The fascist state expresses the will to exercise power and to command. Here the Roman tradition is embodied in a conception of strength, imperial power, as understood by the fascist doctrine, is not only territorial or military or commercial, it is also spiritual and ethical. An imperial nation, that is to say a nation which directly or indirectly is a leader of others, can exist without the need of conquering a single square mile of territory. Fascism sees in the imperialistic spirit, i.e., in other words, in the tendency of nations to expand, a manifestation of their vitality. I should say, for example, in the tendency of nations to expand, a manifestation of their vitality in the opposite tendency which would limit their interest to the home country, it sees a symptom of decadence. People who rise or re-arise are imperialistic. Renunciation is characteristic of dying peoples. The fascist doctrine is that best suited to the tendencies and feelings of the people which, like the Italian, 
after lying fallow during centuries of foreign servitude, are now reasserting itself in the world. And, and today are in foreign servitude, right? But imperialism implies discipline, the coordination of efforts, a deep sense of duty, and a spirit of self-sacrifice. This explains many aspects of the practical activity of the regime and the direction taken by the many forces of the state, as also the severity which has to be exercised towards those who would oppose this spontaneous and inevitable movement of the 20th century Italy by agitating outgrown ideologies of the 19th century. Ideologies rejected wherever great experiments in political and social transformations are being dared. Never before have the people thirsted for authority, direction, order, as they do now. If each age has its doctrine, then innumerable symptoms indicate that the doctrine of our age is the fascist. That it is, it is vital is shown by the fact that it has aroused the faith, that this faith has conquered souls is shown by the fact that fascism can point to its fallen heroes and its martyrs. Fascism has now acquired throughout the world that universally, which belongs to all doctrines, which by achieving self-expression represent a moment in the history of human thought. That concludes this article on the doctrine of fascism by Benito Mussolini. Um, Brian, if you have any comments, I, I, I mean, feel free to make them that the only thing I, that I can say at this point is that fascism certainly isn't what the the Jews and, and their media of today constantly force down our throats. Absolutely, and when the leftists and the liberals say, oh, America's a fascist police state, by no measure is there any validity to that claim. I mean, by any objective standard, by any objective criteria, America's a hardline leftist, socialist, communist country with limited property rights, in a government that disrespects Christianity, disrespects tradition, disrespects family, disrespects our heritage, and has a mostly imperialistic concept of the state, or a sort of civil bureaucratic concept of the state instead of a blood race concept of the state. So by well, well by that's no become that that's what it's become under the the, the um, global banking oligarchy and and the with the Federal Reserve. That's what America has become. That's not how America started out, right? Uh, I mean, the Constitution was written for its signers, the people they represented, and their posterity, right? That they're the only legitimate heirs of the American Constitution, or the posterity of the signers and the people, the Anglo-German people that they represented, right? Absolutely. And if America were under fascism, we wouldn't have all the problems we're presently experiencing. you believe we would? I think we'd have a functioning, healthy, safe society with a respect for individual liberty and for private property. Well, well I hope in, in um, not, not only private property, but the property of the people in general, that that's something that, that Americans miss, and that's something which was a major um, doctrine in Adolf Hitler's national socialism, what was the protection of the intellectual property of a people. And that's something that I hope to cover and explain on, on an upcoming program if we extend this discussion into Hitler's national socialism, right? And I, I wonder, too, in the sense that, how is I going to word this here? What would
would the fascists do, say, when the Chinese steal our patents? I, I think that at the very least it would result in some sort of embargo. It would result in sanctions. They wouldn't say, thank you for stealing our intellectual property and our copyrights and our patents. We're going to continue trading with you and reward you. At the very least, there would be some sort of embargo, and at the most, they might send an armada. Well, well that is where that, – that that, that, if you asked me – what the major economic difference was between fascism and national socialism and Western capitalism, that is exactly where I would go. Because Adolf Hitler understood, and I believe Mussolini probably understood it, even if he didn't express it in his document, that when men have the ability to create things, they're, giving that, they're given that ability because of the general climate and culture which is created by the wider community. In other words, if you're a great inventor and, and you invent a computer, wow, and, and they never existed before, right? Well, you were able to invent that computer not only out of your own genius, you were able to invent that computer because of the entire community of people around you, the people that baked your bread, the people that, that, that collected your trash, the people that mowed your lawn, the people that sewed your clothes, right? That to we, the people that keep the nation safe and prevent you from well, being overrun right. by the Mongols. Our race creates a, a peaceful community so that those among us who are able to do great things and rise above and, and, and create wonders can thrive, right? So, so those achievements really don't belong to the individual alone. They belong to the community as much as they do to the individual. The community has a right to maintain and to benefit from those achievements just as much as the individual does. So progress is a racial thing, right? That's what it boils down to. And, and that can be proven over and over again, right? Well, well, that means that the community, the, the, the wider ethnic group, has a right to retain that intellectual property. And because the community has that right, the Jew capitalist really can't come in, buy a corporation, and ship it to China. Because it doesn't belong to the holder of the capital. It belongs to the people from which it came. It belongs organically to the group which was able to produce it. In the American capitalist system, in the Western capitalist system, the Jew is allowed to loot and pillage because the Jew prints the money. The Jew is allowed to loot and pillage all of the intellectual property of, of, of its creators and move it to anywhere he wants, where Adolf Hitler's National Socialism and, and probably Mussolini's fascism, I'm not 100% sure, would protect the community from those losses. Absolutely. If the Chinese want an assembly line, they're more than capable, well, maybe they're not capable, but they're, they're capable of having the opportunity to do it on their own. They, they have the freedom and the, the opportunity if they can take it. There, there is no sweat from the Jewish brow in, in the creation of, of the wondrous machines, for the most part, that, that the Anglo-Saxon man has, has been able to create. But because the Jew prints our money, 
the Jew has been able to take all those wonders and move them to our enemies in Asia and give them to the Asians, right? I mean, that's basically what, how, how, how the, um, the, industrial, the modern industrial society, that's basically the way it's gone the last 150 years. And my father and I were having a discussion on the dangers of giving our technology to the other races, and he, he tends to go more with the Darwinian view that they evolved on their own from whatever low life forms they originated from, and we evolved from different, you know, higher life forms in Europe and Central Asia. And he was saying that since these people never developed the capacity to develop, say, the steam engine, the diesel engine, internal combustion, the cotton gin, the repeating rifle, etc., that it's been very dangerous and damaging for all races that we've shared our technology and our advancements with them, basically artificially elevating them to a point that they could never reach on their own. And that basically that we had no business or whoever was involved, the capitalists had no business taking our talents and the, the, the um, fruit of our labor, the products of our creative abilities and distributing them to the other races. Well, well, absolutely not, but our enlisting in this Jewish capitalist system and, and way of doing business has enabled them to strip us of all our intellectual ability and move it to the, to the alien races, to the alien states, right? I mean, it's the equivalent of giving a, a firearm to a child, although in some cases you're probably better off giving a firearm to a white child than you are to a full-grown well, it's the equivalent of giving a, a machine gun to a Negro. That, that's what it's the equivalent of doing, and, and we see the results of that all over the world. Right? My, my grandfather said that they're no less dangerous, they're, they're, they're no more civilized, they're just much more lethal now that they have the white man's tools, that before they were limited to throwing spears, and now we've armed them with our weapons so they can kill us more efficiently. And fascism, of course, would prevent this. Well, absolutely. Okay, we're going to go next week. I don't know if you you want to do a fourth segment here. I don't think we need one for this paper. We certainly don't. Maybe we'll discuss National Socialism, or maybe I'll do something else. Or or maybe we'll have Severus Nifelson here, and, and, and I'm sure that he could shed a lot of light for us on the philosophies that developed into fascism and I would I would like to talk to I would have liked to have talked to him last week about that syndicalism and and the socialism and nationalism as they arose in in 19th century France what would be interesting to hear from him about and um with that I'm going to close this program and and we'll just leave next week's program to be announced all right okay praise Yahweh and thank you for listening this has been a three segment discussion of fascism from the the, the, um, the Doctrine of Fascism by Benito Mussolini. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh and good night. Thank you. Yahweh bless. Yahweh bless. Oh, Bill, one final thought. Are we still on? Yes, we are still on. I haven't hit the button yet. I, right? I wanted to um, comment on the sort of American imperialism that we have today. I, I remembered I, I, I didn't... I, I had almost forgotten... The sort of American empire we have, if you even want to call it that, it's maybe it's a, it's a post-imperialism empire. We don't have any benefits as individual citizens, where in, say, the 1890s, 1910, a Britishman, an Englishman, could pretty much travel the world and go to India, Pakistan. He, he could go to Burma, 
Singapore, China, and for the most part, the other races. Well, because our imperialism is a corporate imperialism, and it's not a national imperialism, right? Well, I mean, the Englishman could travel the world safely, and he could even set up shop in Kenya and get a farm going where Americans... Oh, right, but that's... They had a national imperialism where, where, where English armies throughout the world were, were intent upon protecting English citizens, right? Where, and that's not so with the American, with, with the American imperialism. With our Jewish style of imperialism, not only can I not go to Kenya and set up a farm, not only can I not go to certain countries, but for the most part, if I go to those countries, I'm taking my life in my hands. It, it's a gamble. Well, well, American imperialism only cares about the preservation of the multinational corporations, right? That run America. There's no doubt. I just wanted to get that thought and idea out there and make a distinction and um, distinguish between American imperialism and the sort of fascist historical imperialism. Imperialism well, well, that serves the nation versus imperialism that serves the capitalist ruling class. Under English imperialism, the Englishman still counted for something. American imperialism is a lot more Marxist in, in, in that the average American, unless he's a representative of a multinational corporation, the average American is, is just a, 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 um, a, an economic unit and a, a, part of the, the, um, a, a part of the system of trade. You're, you're not a citizen in, in the world in, under American imperialism. Yeah, you're just a commodity. We're all commodities. That's the Marxist idea, and that's what we live under now. Labor is a commodity to be treated like any other commodity. Manpower, the, the human man, the, the man is a commodity. He, he's, he's a commodity to be moved around and pushed around and, and to, to be the pawn of the hand, in the hands of some CEO somewhere in some corporation or, or some bank. I mean, it's a different world than it was in, in the 1800s. But when Englishmen were, were still Englishmen and, and had some dignity and, and were still men and not quite Marxist commodities, right? I mean, it's a different world today, right? All right. Much more Talmudic world than it was 150 years ago, that's for sure. Oh, absolutely. And, and it'll get worse as, as the Talmudists gain more and more con definite power and control, right? I'm surprised. Do you, do you want to hear the wiki definition of corporatism? I'm surprised they threw this up here. They say that um, Pope Leo VIII in 1881 commissioned theologians to study corporatism and provide a definition for it. And in 1884, they came up with their results and declared that corporatism was, quote, a system of social organization that has at its base the grouping of men according to the community of their natural interests and social functions, and as true and proper organs of the state, they direct and coordinate labor and capital in matters of common interest. Well, perhaps we'll do a series shortly in contrast national socialism with Marxist socialism, right? That might be All interesting. Right. That would be. That would be worthwhile. Good night. Thank you. Yarbas. Yeah,